Praise the Lord. Wow. That was great. Uh, praise the Lord, oh my soul. Uh, if you would, please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Jude. Now this is an often neglected epistle, though I don't really know why. Because it's great. It's, it's filled with, with so much stuff. In case you don't know, it's tucked away between the epistles of John and Revelation. So next to the last book of the Bible... And, and though it was written in the mid-60s to counter an uprise of itinerant false teachers who have infiltrated the church and were trying to lead others astray, this book has a lot to say to us today. Jude's opponents, these, these guys claim to see visions. They claim to dream dreams. They, um, they use this charismatic ability to try to uh, defend their own immorality. Because these gifts, um, because of these gifts, they considered themselves to be spiritual authorities, and so they attempted to convince others to follow in the same licentious practices that they were involved in. And by touting themselves as authorities, and by living an antinomian lifestyle, a lifestyle like there is no law to live by, uh, they they rejected Christ's lordship by the way they lived, by by their efforts to lead others astray. And so though this is removed in time and place from us, it is very relevant to us today. The, the issues that Jude was contending against were the same issues that we battle with day in and day out, even within our own souls. We live in a day that rejects authority and views the individual as the only true ruler of one's personal universe. Spiritual authority is then relegated to subjective feelings about their own personal beliefs. They may say, well, that's what you believe, but that's not what I believe. Or, that might be your God, but that's not my God. We live in a culture that cheapens the grace of God to condone rebellious, immoral, and wicked lifestyles. As if God's grace gives us license to sin. To do whatever we please. To live however we desire to live, regardless of who we might hurt or whether or not we profane the name of Christ. As if they say, you know, I know God loves me. He accepts me just the way I am. So it doesn't matter how I live. It doesn't matter who this affects. It's as if they turn Romans 6 on its head. Rather than saying, should we go on sinning that grace may abound? By no means. They turn around and say, you know what? We're going to go on sinning so that God's grace may abound. It's a complete reversal of Scripture. We also live in a society that might profess Jesus as their Savior. But in every capacity, they reject Him as their Lord. They might have walked to the front of the church. They might have prayed a prayer. They might have got received baptism. But in every way that they live their lives, they, they act as if they have no God. They act as if they have no Savior. They say, you know, I'll profess Him to make sure that I don't go to hell. But I will be darned, fill in the other word, <laughs> that I will repent and turn away from my sin. They treat God like, like fire insurance. A way to get out of hell. But they don't love Him. They don't trust Him. They don't hope in Him. And unfortunately, a lot of Christians believe this. A lot of Christians live this way. As if you can be a carnal Christian. As if 
God's grace is so cheap that we can pray a prayer and live the rest of our lives however we please. And so part of our time here is to think about, is grace really that cheap? Is it really that cheap? At the center of Jude's letter is an emphatic exhortation to all Christians in every time, in every place, to fight for the supremacy of Christ. It's a battle for the lordship of Christ. Because it's not only, uh, it's not only that, that the name and reputation of Christ is at stake. Friends, souls are at stake. If we lose the truth, salvation is lost. One cannot be saved if Jesus is not Lord. So, if you would, let's read verses 1 through 4. It says, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and the brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, love be multiplied to you. Beloved, Although I was eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write, appealing to you, to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Jude tells us in this passage that, that Christian faith is, uh, is both a blessing and a responsibility. First, in verses 1 and 2, uh, it shows us some of the blessings given to those who truly believe in Christ. He says, first off, uh, that Christians are set apart for humble service. Sorry. There we go. of technology. <clears throat> It's interesting, Jude calls himself a servant of Jesus, the half-brother of James. What you may or may not know is that he's actually the half-brother of Jesus. Now you would think, if he's writing a letter, he's going to want to establish his authority. He's going to want to establish a sense of credibility to, the, to his potential readers. So it would be advantageous for him to say, hey, you know what? You know, Jesus, he's my bro, you know? <laughs> but he doesn't do that. Uh, he, and rather than, than it, uh, telling people that, that he is the half-brother and using that to establish his own authority, he chooses not to. He calls himself a servant. But why does he do it? You ever wonder that? I, I kind of thought about that. Maybe, maybe it was because he was one of the family members in Mark 3 that came to seize Jesus because they thought he was out of his mind. Or maybe he was one of the brothers in John 7 that taunted Jesus, saying, hey, if you're who you say you are, go and prove it. Or maybe, like the rest of his hometown, Nazareth, they rejected, he rejected him as a son of a carpenter. It's because, I think it's really, because at some point along the way, he realized who Jesus truly was. He realized, this, this is not just my brother, this is not just the son of a carpenter. It might have been when Jesus revealed himself to James after the resurrection that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 15. But at some point along the way, Jude went from rejecting his brother to following Christ. 
He was humble. He was given the privilege and responsibility of serving Christ. Jude calls himself a servant because he knows he's unworthy to be called a leader. He calls himself a slave of Jesus because he recognizes that Jesus is Lord. This is one of those areas where I don't, I don't know that we fully can grasp it. You know, we, we can read about slavery. You know, we, can, we can read first-hand accounts of what that was like. But we are we're years and years removed, centuries removed now, from what slavery is really like. We don't, we don't understand what it's like for somebody to be an authority over you, to dictate your every action. We don't know what it's like to be someone else's property. But that's what Jude calls himself here. He calls himself a bondservant, a slave of Christ. And he does that because he recognizes that Jesus is Lord. This is a humble privilege for all Christians. You know, we, we fail to realize, with, with regards to slavery, we're a slave to something. You know, Romans 6, Paul talks about this. Either we're slaves to sin, that we follow our, our sinful desires, or we are slaves to righteousness, to servants to the true king. You know, I mean, Bob Dylan was right, wasn't he? You know? You may be, uh, you may serve the devil or you may serve the Lord, but everybody's got to serve somebody. Yeah? Um, but this is a humble privilege for all of us. To be accepted by the merciful Lord that we once hated. And to be servants of the gracious King we once scorned. But not only are we blessed to be set apart for humble service, but Jude also says that we've been called by God. Now, this call, this call is not just an invitation. God is not a preteen drama queen who begs her friends to come to her sleepover or she's just going to die. It's not like that. This is a... This is a summons. Alright? Alright, get this. This is a summons. You understand? This is, this is a king calling a servant. This is a, a master calling a slave. This is like when Aslan called Peter... To, to lead his army against the ice queen. You know, it is not something that is deserved, can be earned, and it cannot be declined. Romans 8.30. Well, let me, let me say this first. Uh, I looked up in the Bible. I was curious about this. Is there ever a time in the Bible where God makes a call and it goes unanswered? Where God really makes an effectual call and goes unanswered? The answer is no. Every time God calls, it's answered. Every single time. God's call to salvation is effective. Romans 8.30 says, And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. His salvation, God's call to salvation is effective. Those who are called will indeed be glorified. But not only is this, this call a, a summons to follow Christ, um, to follow Christ, but it's also a summons to belong to Christ. Early, earlier in Romans 1.6, Paul says that he was called to be an apostle to bring about the obedience of faith for you who have been called to belong to Jesus Christ. Those who belong to, to Christ uh, are those... I'm sorry. <clears throat> those who, who are in Christ belong to Christ. 
Those who are in Christ are God's people, set apart for His possession. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20, Your body is not your own. You were bought for a price. Therefore glorify God in your body. But we are not called to belong as slaves to a cruel master. You know, so far we've we've seen this this call, this this um, that we are, if we're truly in Christ, we're to be servants of God. And, and that might seem kind of harsh, but God is not a cruel dictator because He is a loving, loving King. We belong to as the beloved bride to the bridegroom Christ who deeply loved us and laid down his life for us. We were purchased with his blood as a display of God's love for us. Romans 5.8. You know, what does it say? God shows his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, while we hated him, while we rejected him, while we disobeyed him, while we turned our back and spit on his face, he loved us and sent Christ to die for us. Isaiah 53.10 says that it actually pleased the Lord to crush Christ so that we might be brought into intimate fellowship with Him. This is not some cruel tyrant that we serve. This is a loving, sovereign God. He is tender, yet sovereign. Do you, do you recognize Christ this way? This this balance of, of compassion, of love, of tenderness, and of sovereignty, rule, rightful dominion over every aspect of my life. Not only are Christians set apart for humble service, called and loved by God through faith, but Jude also says that believers are kept for Jesus Christ. We persevere in the faith because we are kept by Jesus. He is the agency of our endurance. We, didn't, we don't stay in the faith by our own effort, as if we're going to muster up enough faith to, to get us in. But our faith is effective because Christ keeps us from falling away. In Jude 24, he says that, that God is able to keep you from stumbling. In 1 Peter 1, 3-5, it says that God is to be praised because he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who, and this is the important part, by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. It's God's power through Christ that keeps us in the faith. But we are not only kept by Christ, we are kept, as it says here, for Christ. No one, do you realize that no one is going to take Christ's bride from him? No one is going to strip Christ's bride from his hand. That's, that's our eschatological end. That's our goal. That's, that's the end of our salvation, is that we will belong to Christ, right? And why do we treat that as if that's something in the future? Like one day, when I get to heaven, then I'm going to be Christ's. Wrong. We're Christ's now. We're kept by Him and for Him. Revelation 21 just says it well, you know, uh, in, in, in trying to uh, exemplify how we are God's people returning to God's place under God's rule. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. 
He will dwell with them, and they will be His people, and God Himself will be with them as their God. If He's going to be your God that way then, He ought to be the God in the same way to you now. Then in verse 2, the salutation is given. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Now this is both a recognition of the mercy, peace, and love that we have already received, and it's also a prayer that we might that they might be given in abundance. So it's a recognition that, hey, as believers, you know what? We have already received so much mercy, peace, and love. We ought to celebrate. We ought to rejoice in this. But we still pray for more. We still pray for more of God's grace that we might be able to stand against whatever circumstances that, that we might find ourselves in, whether they be suffering or whether they be, uh, in, in Jude's case, these false teachers who are trying to pervert the faith. Do you think about grace? How do you think about that? I think often we think about grace as given as a one-time event to lead us to salvation. But we fail to realize that this is a continual power given to us so that we might persevere, so that we might stand, so that we might grow and continue to be sanctified. Friends, this is the gospel. Jude has just unpacked for us the gospel. What it is to be in Christ. What, what a blessing this is. But it's, it's required you know, that we respond in repentance and faith. But we deserve... Uh, I just... Yeah, I just... I feel it necessary just to stop and focus on this. You know, we've... Is this how you see faith? Really? Do you see this? Is, does this look like a blessing to you right now? When we see this stuff up on the screen, set apart for humble service, called beloved in God the Father, kept for Jesus Christ, recipients of mercy, peace, and love, does that seem like a blessing? Or are these just words up on a screen? Does that matter? I mean, think about it. Think about, think about our state before we were in Christ, okay? Though we deserved death, and eternal damnation, He offers us the privilege of humble service. Though we have rejected Him time and time again, scorned Him, spit in His face, He calls us to belong to Him as His bride. Though we hated Him and rebelled against Him, He loved us. Though we are adulterers by nature and prone to wander, He keeps us as His bride for Himself. And though we deserve brutality, strife, and hatred. I mean, that's the world we live in, right? That's us. He offers us mercy, peace, and love. You know, I, I pray that we might receive it. I pray that each of us will respond with joyful, repentant, faith-filled hearts. This is a blessing, isn't it? But is it yours? You know, those who believe are beneficiaries of the greatest blessing we could ever know. But we are called to use it well. There is a purpose in our privilege. You see, faith with faith comes not only a blessing, but a responsibility. I want to read verses 3 and 4 again. Beloved, Although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you 
to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our Lord God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. You know, i got to be honest. When I read this verse, I mean, it gets me pumped. You know, I, I read the, the idea of contending for the faith, and I just want to roll my sleeves up and throw down. I mean, that's, I guess that's just my nature. I'm sort of a, a catechistic cowboy or a doctrinal <laughs> dogfighter, you know? I mean, that's just, you know, I, I get pumped. I mean, I read it, and it makes me just want to jump on my horse and charge into the gunfight, six guns blazing, you know, just going to take every villain captive and hang him, you know? I mean, that's, that's what I think of. When I read this verse, catechistic cowboy. That's right. Doctrinal dogfighter. Yeah, that's me. But, and yes, we are to contend. Absolutely. We have to contend for the faith, but we have to be careful how we contend for the faith. Jude here appeals to them to fight because he's concerned for them. He offers to them a timely pastoral response. He says beloved. He calls them beloved, not just because they're beloved in God, but because he loves them. And as a pastor who cares for his flock, he writes to them to protect them so that they will not be led astray. Also notice his original intention there, intention in verse 3. He says, I was eager to write to you about our common salvation. He says, you know, I'd much rather write a joyful letter, a letter of encouragement, where we can talk about our mutual faith and we can be built up. I mean, that's what I want to do. I just want to build you up in the faith, but I've got to stop that. I've got to put it down because I find it necessary to deal with this issue. This is, this is serious business. Necessity requires that I talk about this. Because I love you, I stopped writing my originally intended letter to encourage you in the faith because I have to deal with this issue. And I have to deal with it now. It's not something that I can wait around on. And though it's regretful, I am compelled, as your elder, to address this situation because souls are at stake. I think another reason this is Jude's disposition, this, this timely pastoral response, is found in actually in verses 22 and 23. If you want to look over there. He says, have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. You know, our, our approach to false teaching should always be redemptive. You ever think about that? I mean, we, we see it, we get scared, we want to defend, we want to protect the purity of the church. But we always show mercy. And how do we do this? I think we do it by teaching them sound doctrine. We do like Jude does here and warning them of the impending judgment that will fall upon all who are found to be false teachers. And if they refuse to repent, we have to remove them from fellowship, from the body, always in love, and always showing mercy. You know, it's... It's interesting, this past week I've been memorizing a, a, a passage that really fits this situation well. It's, it's 2 Timothy 2, 24-26. And it says, the, the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, 
but kind to everyone, patiently enduring, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. And why? God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Friends, we engage the enemy. We hold the line. We, we, we warn them of the impending doom that will befall upon them in order not to condemn, but to liberate captives. We think of it with regards to the army illustration. We, we hold the line. We, we stand our ground. We stand firm. You know, but, but our goal is not to, to crush. That's what Christ is going to do when he comes with his legions. Okay? What we are to do is to hold the ground to advance the kingdom, one soul at a time, but to liberate those who are captives. This is recon missions. That's what he's calling us to do. <clears throat> Furthermore, it's the responsibility of all believers. Jude's not just writing here to the elders, to the pastors, to the scholars and the teachers. Nor did Jude hop on his donkey and ride down there to handle the issue himself. He writes a letter addressed to all believers, asking them to contend for the faith. All who have been called have hereby been charged to defend the faith. So consider yourselves drafted. Okay? Remember this song from VBS? You may never march in the infantry, ride in the cavalry, shoot the artillery. You may never fly over the enemy, but you're in the Lord's army. Yes, sir. I mean, that's right. Whether you're aware of it, and also, whether you're aware of it or not, you're actually a theologian. Do you realize that? You are a theologian. Every single one in this room is a theologian. A theologian is what? One who studies the nature of God. Right? The question is whether you're a good one or not. Good theologians know, love, and speak truth. Bad theologians infect others, either out of ignorance or out of heresy. Either out of ignorance or heresy. There's no such thing as ignorance is bliss, or what you don't know can't hurt you. So, the question is, really, I mean, which, which do you want to be? Do you want to be a good theologian or a bad theologian? Because if you want to be a good theologian, that's what you're called to. Train yourself. Be equipped. Be ready to stand and hold the line and contend for the faith. There is a faith that has been once and for all delivered to the saints. Jude didn't say here, contend for your faith or contend for your faiths, or contend for faith, like the idea of a personal relationship with God. He says, contend for the faith, a set of doctrinal truths about Jesus Christ. Like Jude, you know, we, we live in a culture that endorses relativism. It says, you know what, that might be truth for you, but it's not truth for me. That might be what you believe, but that's not what I believe. That might be your God, but that is not my God. And as a result, they say, you know what? I don't believe in absolute truth. I mean, that's what that statement ultimately means. There's no such thing as an absolute. And they subscribe only to what truths they find 
personally satisfying. But do you see what's happened here? When you say, that may be your God, but that's not my God, what you're doing is actually putting yourself in authority over that. Like, I can stand in authority to judge what is God and what is not God. But God has given us His Word. God has told us who He is. And so if we remove parts from that, if we say, you know what, I don't like how that sounds, so I'm not going to believe it, or I'm going to try to twist it to meet my own reasonable understanding, then we're standing in authority over the Word of God. We're standing in authority over God. But Jude says to them, no, there is one faith. There is a faith that has been once for all delivered to the saints. Like Jude, we also live in a culture that pushes pluralism. That says that Jesus is just one way to God. But there are many ways. Therefore, all you really need is a sincere faith. I mean, you can believe that Jesus is an, uh, an Indian avatar from the 6th century that, that came and, and spoke uh, words of peace and liked to smoke ganja, and you're okay. As long as you believe that's really true. That's not the case. You know, it's just because you you feel like you believe something doesn't mean that that's true. But again, Jude says that's that's not the way it is. You must believe the truth about Jesus. There is a truth which you must embrace, or if you do not, you do not participate in his salvation. This truth that, that he contends us, uh, he calls us to contend for has been delivered to the saints, to believers. Okay, that's what saints are. Saints are not some you know, miracle performers who are super spiritual. They're everybody, everybody who is truly a believer. Um, and he, he says it's been delivered to them once and for all. This is an important phrase. This is something that we need to grasp. It has been completely given to all believers for all time. That's what Jude's saying here. This apostolic faith that was presented 2,000 years ago is the same faith that we are called to believe today, that has been delivered to us, and it is the same faith that 2,000 years ago, or from now, 2,000 years from now, will be the same apostolic faith that we are to hold to. It is, is unchangeable. God has delivered for all time this faith. And how can he say this? How can he say that that faith 2,000 years ago is this, the same faith that we need to hold to? The answer is because there is no greater revelation than Jesus Christ. There is no greater picture of God than, than God made flesh. There is no greater, clearer picture than, than Christ coming to earth, living a perfect life, dying a perfect death on our behalf, being buried in a tomb for three days and rising from the dead. It doesn't get any clearer than that. And because of that, there's no need for continued revelation. Nothing's going to bring us any closer to salvation than Christ. It's only Christ. So, Jude's saying, beware of those who profess additional revelation. Beware of those who try to change the gospel. They're false teachers. I mean, Paul agrees with this. Ephesians 2.20, when he says that the church is built upon the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus being the cornerstone, 
or in 2 Timothy 1, 13 and 14, where he exhorts Timothy to follow the pattern of sound words that, they have, that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Jesus Christ. By the Holy Spirit, who dwells within us, guard the good deposit. The good deposit is the gospel that dwells in you. Or in Galatians 6.19, or Galatians 1, 6-9, um, I am astonished that how quickly you are deserting Him who called you by, grace of, by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we, or an angel from heaven, should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one I preach to you, let him be accursed. The gospel of Jesus Christ has been delivered by the apostles is the only, once and for all, faith. <clears throat> so beware. Beware of those who, who advance additional revelation. Beware of those who try to use that to make themselves in, in the authority. Uh, dreams, visions, prophecies... They're not continued revelation. Church tradition is not continued revelation. The Quran of Islam is not continued revelation, nor the Book of Mormon, nor Sun Moon's divine principle, nor anything else that anyone would claim as an authority in order to distort the gospel that we have of Jesus Christ as it has been laid out in Scripture alone. This is it. There is one faith one gospel of Jesus Christ. It has been delivered, and it will always be. It is authoritative, and it is absolute. And because of this, because it's absolute, it is worth contending for. Amen. <laughs> Amen, huh? <laughs> you know, there are a set of doctrine truths that are, that are worth fighting for. They're worth even laying our lives down for. There's, again, this is something that our culture doesn't understand. That there are some truths that are so precious that they are worth dying for. Let me throw some names out here. John Rogers, John Hooper, Roland Taylor, Robert Farrar, John Bradford, Nicholas Ridley, Hugh Latimer, Thomas Cranmer. Do you know who these guys are? Anybody? They are martyrs. Do you know when they were martyred? The Reformation, that's right. Between the years of 1555 and 1558, these men, along with 280 others, were burned alive by Queen Mary of England, otherwise known as Bloody Mary. Right? Why? What truth were they holding to? Do you remember? It wasn't that Christ was fully God and fully man. It wasn't this idea of penal substitutionary atonement that, that Christ took on the wrath of God that was deserved for us as a substitute. He offered himself, and by his blood he atoned for our sin, the sin that we deserve. That wasn't it. It was because they didn't believe that Jesus' body was present in the Eucharist, but was in heaven at God's right hand. They died for that. They, were, they, they experienced excruciating pain because they believed so vehemently and in truth it was worth dying for. I think it's 
these blood, this blood of martyrs, it serves as a powerful testimony to us, doesn't it? That there is a truth that is worth dying for. There is a truth that's worth contending for. They realized that when faith is at stake, salvation is at stake. That when truth is lost, salvation is lost. And so we contend. We, but we don't contend against believers. We don't contend just about anybody that comes in the door. We contend against false teachings, right? This faith that has been once for all delivered for the, to the saints has been repeatedly threatened within the church. Bloody Mary, who we just mentioned, she's not a barbarian. She was a professing believer. Wasn't she? The greatest threats to the doctrine of the church are not those outside the church that are spewing something else, but those who come into the church and try to deceive others, that try to lead others astray. By nature, they, on the outside, look like believers. Jude said that these these certain people, they crept in unnoticed. They went unnoticed because on on the outside, at face value, they appeared in every regards to be believers. But it was only after time that their actions became clear, that they were, as he considered, ungodly people. And he calls them ungodly people. I think a better translation is actually godless people. They're godless because they're acting as if there's no God. There's there's no righteous ruler. There's no supreme authority. They live without regard for Christian belief or practice. Though they profess to be believers, they actually deny Christ by the way they live. And here again, in verse 4, when he says that they deny their only Master and Lord Jesus Christ, we see the Lordship issue coming up yet again. Now these people weren't outwardly denying Christ. It's not like they came into the church and then one day said, Jesus is not Lord. They were saying that they were denying him in practice, in the way that they lived, because they continued to use God's grace as a license to sin. It's interesting. You know, Jude calls Christ master. And the idea of this is one who holds complete power or authority over another. He calls him Lord. And this, again, is the idea of creator, ruler, owner, sovereign. That's what it means. Therefore, it is unfathomable unfathomable in, in Jude's mind to be a follower of Christ as Lord and yet willfully, continually persist unrepentantly in sin. But rather than submitting themselves to follow Christ, these people are actually perverting the grace of God into sensuality. These people use God's grace as a license to sin. They presume upon God's mercy uh, in order to justify their own morality. These men and women cheapen grace, and in the process, they profane the name of Christ. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a Lutheran pastor during the Second World War. He was actually uh, he was executed in a plot to uh, assassinate Hitler during that time, um, and he talks a lot about this. He's, he sees in his own day this this tendency to presume upon God's grace and to pervert it into doing whatever we please. 
It may not be sensuality, but it may be something else. That where just God's grace is an excuse, a license for us to sin. And I just kind of wanted to read a quote here. This is what we mean by cheap grace. Grace which amounts to the justification of sin without the justification of the repentant sinner who departs from sin and from whom sin departs. Cheap grace is not the kind of forgiveness of sin which frees us from the toils of sin. Cheap grace, catch this, is the grace that we bestow on ourselves. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance, the baptism without church discipline, communion without confession, absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. Costly grace, okay, costly grace is the treasure hidden in the field for the sake of it. A man will gladly go and sell all that he has. It is a pearl of great price to buy which the merchant will sell all his goods. It is the kingly rule of Christ for whose sake a man will pluck an eye out which causes him to stumble. It is the call of Jesus Christ at which the disciple leaves his nets and follows him. Costly grace is the gospel which must be sought again and again. The gift which must be asked for, the door at which a man must knock. Such a grace is costly because it calls us to follow, and it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It is costly because it costs a man his life, and it is grace because it gives a man the only true life. It is costly because it condemns sin, and grace because it justifies the sinner above all. It is costly because it cost God the life of His Son. You were bought at a price. And what God, and what has cost God so much, cannot be cheap to us. Above all, this is grace. Because God did not reckon His Son too dear a price to pay for our life, but delivered Him up for us. Costly grace is the incarnation of God. Commend this book to you. Friends, we face the same issues today that Jude faced and the Diedrich Bonhoeffer faced. Many will cheapen God's grace, they will pervert it, they will presume upon it that it will cover their sins. They will continue as slaves to their sinful desires and deceive themselves and others into believing that God will continue to forgive. And we, you and I, those who are part of this church need to be doubly aware of it. We really do. Because we are both a magnet and a breeding ground for false teachers. Do you realize that? We're a magnet because it's the cynics, the rebels, the contentious, the divisive, the unrepentant, and the dissatisfied that are always drawn to church plants. They like what's new. They like what's young. They like what is unformed and what is easily manipulated. At a church plant, they can come, they can get involved, they can get into leadership, and they can destroy the faith. But we also um, have to be careful because if we're doing our jobs as evangelists, we will lead, uh, we will encounter false teachers. We will invite them into our church. We will share the gospel with them, and if we are not discerning, if we are not careful to examine them, 
we let the men give them wide open door to, to again, lead the church astray. But I think, most importantly, for those of us who are in this room, we need to be aware of our own hearts. Sin is deceptive. And if we aren't serious about it, it will cause us to look upon God's grace as being cheap. That we will presume that God will continue to forgive. That we will practice the same sins over and over and over again. And eventually other people will see that and they will practice those sins as well. And though we might not say, hey, you know what? I can see, I, I, I have visions, I dream dreams, so you can follow me as a spiritual authority. By our practice, we still deny our only Lord and Master, Jesus Christ. So we must be aware. What we don't know can hurt us. Ignorance is not bliss, it's blasphemy. Therefore, study. Gird up the loins of your mind, because truth matters. Without it, there is no salvation. I just want to real quickly commend a second book to you. Um, the Gospel According to Jesus by John MacArthur really deals with this issue of, of the Lordship of Christ and those who cheapen grace. And it's just a, a great resource for just recognizing why Jesus being Lord is so essential to the Christian faith. And finally... You know, we have to give mention to this. Jude says that that these people were long ago designated for this condemnation. The reality is, these people were marked out beforehand for this destruction. You know, we'll talk more about this on July 26 when we cover verses 5 through 16. But Jude's point in talking about this is to let us know that, you know what? This is no surprise to God. These people aren't catching God aware. He knew this was going to happen. It has been written down beforehand through prophecies, but also in His book. You know, Jesus promised that false teachers would come among us as wolves in in sheep's clothing to lead many astray. So don't be shocked. God has passed His verdict on them. So I know we've, we've covered a lot of ground. But I just want to say this in closing. Stand firm on the blessings that you have received in Christ. Grow in abundant mercy, love, and peace that comes from God. Know the truth and contend for it. Trust in the glorious, majestic, sovereign, all-powerful Lord who is able to keep you from stumbling. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, that it lays bare our hearts. Lord, I know that even in in talking about this, I am reminded of my own tendency to minimize the wonders of the blessings that we have received in Christ. That I can see that we are recipients of of mercy, peace, and love, and I just kind of, those are just words on a page sometimes. God, I repent of that. And I pray that, that that might be the greatest treasure I might ever know, that we might ever know, that we might behold it so dear that we're willing to die for it. God, give us the strength and the wisdom to contend for those who try to pervert your gospel. Help us to be aware of our sin, that we might not subtly slip into the deception of 
of following our wicked desires and and perverting your grace and then denying our only Master, Lord Jesus Christ. And God, I pray that He would be our Lord, that we would celebrate that we have been redeemed by a, a tender, loving, sovereign King. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.